told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You may be seated. Well, welcome again to Good News. Uh, we're glad you're here if it's the first time, or if you're uh, visiting again for a second or third time, or if you haven't been with us in a while, we're really glad you're here. And uh, if you look in the seat in front of you or in the row in front of you, there should be a welcome card stuck in one of the little tabs in front of you. If we don't have your information, or if you decided to scrap your Facebook and start over, or send a new, like, adult grown-up email that's not your AOL from years ago, please write it down on this card. That would be fantastic. And then stick this in the offering when it goes past in a minute. Well, as always, we have all of our announcements here in our bulletin. So if you are trying to figure out all that's going on, check out this bulletin. But there's a few that I also want to highlight for you today. And the first is our annual church picnic. You should have a little flyer inside. It's going to be exciting. We're praying that it's nice and sunny and there's not a lot of rain, so it's not too wet. But the church picnic is on July the 12th. I know there was some confusion last week with our little insert, but July the 12th, put it on your calendar, it is this Saturday. This Saturday. So this is your last chance to sign up because we need people to sign up to bring food, show off your uh, favorite salad or your favorite rice, talk to Mickey in the back. She's going to wave her hand. Talk to her about signing up to bring something and pre-registering so we know who is all going to be there. It's going to be great. Um, also, uh, as a reminder, we are going to be having a baptism as we do every year. We would love love it this year at the church picnic that you took this step of faith showing us your, uh, your faith in Christ and making it public through baptism. If you would like to be baptized this year, this Saturday at our church picnic, please talk to Pastor Terry. He's over there in the corner. You'll see him preaching, so he should be uh, pretty hard to miss. Um, and then lastly, with the church picnic, uh, this year, um, the uh, Spanish congregation who is downstairs, and then we flip-flop, so they're up here while we're downstairs after we're fellowshipping, they will be joining with us at the church picnic. Um, on occasion, we've had a few people, but this year, we're hoping to get a lot of people so that we have a, a great unified body. 
And uh, if you have been here for the past few weeks, Nehemiah is about unity, so it's a very timely um, act of what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. Uh, second thing, VBS. VBS is coming up in just over two weeks. Yeah. If you would like to sign up your kids early, that would be fantastic. Talk to me afterwards. Or talk to Ellie. She's sitting over there in the corner. We will have registration sheets that you guys can take and you can fill out. We need you to fill this out so we know how many people we're going to have and that we can avoid paperwork on the first day. Again, BBS is July 21st through 25th, 6 o'clock at night till 8.30. It's going to be a great time. Uh, we had a meeting last week and we are again, volunteers, going to have a meeting next Sunday after church. So if you're volunteering and if you missed the last meeting especially, join us after church next week at about 12 o'clock over in the mission home. I think that's all I have. So let's go and uh, go to offering and we're going to pray as we receive this morning's offering. Father, thank you that our chains are gone, that you have set us free. Lord, that we can come to you worshiping, knowing that we are not enslaved, but that we are free and we are your children. I thank you for the time of worship that we've already had, and I pray that in this morning's offering, that as we receive these funds, that it would be another act of worship. As we recognize that there are things going on in this church, things that cost money, that we are able to participate in worship through the giving of what we have earned, that we can give it back to you, thanking you. I pray that you would honor our giving, Lord, that you would be moving in our church and that we would see as a result of our giving uh, your work in our church, Lord. I thank you for what you are doing among us and I pray that you would continue to be with us in this worship service. In your name I pray. Amen.
Yep, making sure we're all here. Uh, at this time, God's kids are dismissed. Go to their classes. Um, Pastor Ralph and his wife, Miss Chris, are on a break today. They traveled to rest in Iowa for a few days, and I just can't tell you how happy it makes me that they vacation in Iowa. That's my homeland, and I just got to tell you, it's like the best kept secret in the nation. So, so we, we want to pray for them, that God would restore and rejuvenate them in their time apart. And then we also want to continue to pray for Miss Pat, Leonard's mom. Um, Leonard told me that she had a, a mini stroke this morning. She's still in intensive care, and they're looking to do surgery. Once again this week So we want to continue to be lifting her up every day Also, um, please pray for Josie Josie's mom, Lalita um, She's in the hospital currently And we want to pray for her full recovery um, Also, you'll see these um, baskets of dresses in front of me right here There are 126 Dresses that were made by members of the church to send to Haiti this week. Yeah. And so we, we want to pray. We want to pray that um, these dresses would be a blessing, that they would just be um, a token of the love of Jesus Christ for those who receive them. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you that because of your grace, you have sought us out when we were desperately lost. And we thank you that your grace has found us and you have sent Christ to be our Savior. Lord, we, we pray for Pastor Ralph and Miss Chris, we pray that this time truly would be a retreat, that they would be able to gain strength and be encouraged and come back with that much more ability to walk the road that is before them. And I thank you that you are their comfort and you are their provider, Lord God. Father, we continue to pray for Miss Patton. Lord, we ask for your healing upon her because I thank you that you are so much bigger than any illness that we face. And Lord, we ask that you would be guiding the doctors and Lord, we pray in particular that you would continue to give Leonard strength. We thank you for the strength that you have given him and the love that he has shown to his mother. Father, if it be your will, we just pray for her full recovery. Lord, we pray for Lalita. Lord, that you would also be working in her life, comforting her, giving her peace, and bringing her the fullness of health. Again, we pray for comfort for her family. Thank you that it says in Scripture that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in everything that we face. Thank you that it says in Scripture that you are the God of peace. And Lord, we pray for these dresses. We thank you for all the hours of work that have gone into making these dresses. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would guide and direct 
their way to Haiti, and Lord, that, that those who receive these dresses would know that you love them, that you care for them, that your eyes are upon them. You are their provider. Lord, we pray for the Rivera's time there, that it would be fruitful. For your namesake, we pray. Amen. Uh, just before I get started, um, a quick announcement. This just in, this is hot off the press. I uh, got there at about midnight. And I had never been on campus before. In fact, I thought it was in Chicago. So much to my surprise, it was um, right down the street from Michael Jordan's house. But I wanted to get to know the campus. So at about midnight, I went out and started to explore and kind of there in the stillness of the night I had this time with the Lord I remember walking around the football field and just beginning to pray and, and then I had one of those extremely unique moments where God pressed something so clearly in my heart it was, it was almost as if I heard it and what he pressed on my heart was you stink with pride. It's amazing. Those words are from Scripture. And, and I want you to know, it wasn't spoken like an enemy. It wasn't spoken abrasively. That's not the impression I got, but like a friend. Gentle and firm. And in that moment, it just became so clear to me that was true. And my heart was opened to God beginning this process of uprooting these weeds from my heart. These weeds of pride. And I want you to know this process is still going on. But it was through this process that I began to realize that it's not all about me. And that's what saved my ministry. And it was through this process that I began to realize that until Jesus' return, God's plan has been entrusted to the church. And it's not, it's so much bigger than one person. That it's about the church. And I remember reading this verse, and for the first time it just really hit me, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. And it says something incredible. It says, To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Isn't that amazing? To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. We have been given such an amazing task. It's incredible what God has entrusted to us until Jesus returns. And so that is a main reason why I am excited to be going through Nehemiah this summer. Because the book of Nehemiah is chock full of insights about the church. Well, how can that be when it was written so long ago, way back in the Old Testament? Oftentimes, something that is real in the Old Testament and has significance in the Old Testament 
points to an even greater reality in the New Testament. For example, the animal sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament point to the greater reality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which takes away sin once and for all. It's, it's a real thing in the Old Testament, but points to a greater reality in the New. And the wall in Nehemiah points to the greater reality of the church. Because God's special presence no longer dwells in a place, Jerusalem, but in a people, the church. And I don't mean the church as like a building, but the church as a community of believers. And there can be a local expression of that, like we have at Good News, and there's a universal expression of that as well. Paul is talking to a community of believers in Ephesians 2, and he says, In Christ, you are being built into a, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, You are God's building. And Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you and I are living stones built into a spiritual house. So in Nehemiah, the building project is a place. In the New Testament, the building project is a people. And so in many ways, Nehemiah can help us with our building project, the building up of the people of God, the church. So today's passage in particular, Nehemiah 2, 11 through 332, focuses in on that building process. And so as we learn from the text in the original context, the question that we ask for ourselves in our context is this. What then does it look like to build up the church? And this is a major question, because over and over again, we are challenged to do that work of building up. It resounds like a drumbeat throughout all the pages of Scripture. Build up. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 really drives it home when it says, Let all things be done for building up. In other words, everything we do, everything that we sets our hands and our faces to do as a church. The goal in all of that is building up. And building up means growing into the maturity of Jesus Christ, more and more becoming like Him, and walking in the fullness of who He has meant us to be. So our passage this morning unfolds in three scenes. And as we travel through these scenes, the picture of what it looks like to build up the church will become more and more clear. So if you have your Bible with you today, please join me at our starting point, if you're not already there, Nehemiah 2.11. And as Pastor Ralph said a while back, a helpful way to find Nehemiah is to get to the Psalms, and then you flip back three books. We met Nehemiah not too long ago. He was working a luxurious position as the cupbearer for the king of Persia, the most powerful nation in the world, King Artaxerxes. We watched as Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, gave him news that Jerusalem was a wasteland, and Nehemiah was grieved to the core. 
he wept, he fasted, and he prayed for days on end. Four months later, he is bringing the king new wine, and Artaxerxes asks him, Why do you look so sullen? Now, you were not supposed to be sad in front of the king. At the risk of his neck, Nehemiah gave to prayer and told the king about his heart for Jerusalem. And this could have been taken as an act of high treason, but the good hand of God was upon Nehemiah. The king sent him off with a full travel visa, the imperial secret service, and a letter that would provide all the supplies he needed, like a blank check. 800 miles later, they arrived. And what happened next is the subject of our first scene, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11. We read, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gates. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So intriguing. Consider what it was like to watch these events transpire. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem after days and days, probably upwards of 50 days of traveling. He has a heart for this city. And right away, he lies low. He doesn't show his cards as soon as he gets there. He waits. After three days, we watch out as he sneaks out incognito under the cover of the night while others are sleeping. He takes with him only a few trusted companions. He takes only one donkey, probably to avoid making too much noise. Hidden by the dark, they quietly slip their way out of the valley gate, and we begin to kind of piece together the purpose for this covert operation. Nehemiah wants an up-close look at the walls. Like a detective in the night, he is gathering pertinent information while others are sleeping. We watch as he heads south along the perimeter of the wall, surveying the scene. And Oscar, if you have a picture of Jerusalem there. Um, This is Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, and you can kind of see that it looks a bit like a spoon. So the top part of the spoon is north, the bottom part is south. And so at this point, Nehemiah is leaving from about here in the city, and he's working his way along the west wall towards the south. Put that right there. Evidence suggests that this part of the wall, the west wall on the back there, was the part that he first observed, and it was was in better condition than the rest of the wall. But after he gets to the dung gate, we watch as Nehemiah turns that southern tip and he looks out across the east wall 
and the east wall had been demolished completely. It was a site of complete devastation and wreckage. You see, the east wall sat along a steep slope which descended into the Kidron Valley. So when it was attacked, its contents came toppling down like a landslide, like someone rolling a handful of dice. In fact, it was so obliterated that we find out later in Nehemiah that he didn't even try to attempt to rebuild it. He actually just rebuilt a new wall higher up along the slope. The remains of the wall, the houses, and the debris were strewn about everywhere. It was such a mess, Nehemiah couldn't even get through. He went down to the valley, the Kidron Valley, where there was a trash heap. And he walked along this valley and looked up at the mounds of rubble. And can you imagine what he must have felt? Nehemiah wept just hearing about the devastation in Jerusalem. And here he was, in the shadows of the night, taking it in with his own eyes. How he must have ached to see it like it was. How he must have longed for restoration. It's unclear why Nehemiah chose not to complete the loop. At this point, he's about here. And it simply says that he turned around and head back the way he came. Once again, he keeps it all to himself. He tells no one. What is Nehemiah up to? Why is he being so secretive? Sneaking out in the middle of the night incognito, keeping everything under wraps. Nehemiah is going to great lengths to remove potential threats from the project. He's taking great pains to remove potential threats from the project. The first threat is from the outside. Just before this scene in chapter 2, verse 10, we met two people who opposed Nehemiah, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. If these two caught wind of what Nehemiah was doing, they could easily misrepresent his actions, spreading rumors about Jerusalem and twisting the minds of the public to be decided against him before the project even began. It's like they're whispering, the king sent Nehemiah from Persia to spy out our city. Don't listen to him. He's not one of us. Nehemiah wants to prevent this. Imagine speaking to a crowd of people who had already made up their minds against what you were about to say. The project would have been seriously hindered. The second threat is from the inside. If Nehemiah rushed into the city and presented an undeveloped plan without truly knowing the ins and outs of the situation, the people of Jerusalem might have been reluctant to get on board. The project would have been seriously hindered. And so that's why Nehemiah takes his time to see the scene with his own eyes, to collect all the information that he needs to. That's why Nehemiah is being so secretive. He's keeping his opponents in the dark and his plan to himself until it is ready. And what all this effort boils down to is that Nehemiah knows the project will fail if the people are not in it. 
If they are not on board, it won't get off the ground. Or to put it another way, Nehemiah realizes that if he goes at this alone, it won't go anywhere. So behind all of this, behind all the taking great pains, is an attitude that says, I need you. Nehemiah is communicating to the people of Jerusalem, I need you. He needs them to be on board. And this speaks to our building project. The building up of the people of God. Of seeing people walk in the fullness of all that God intended. Of growing in maturity in Christ. If this project is to go anywhere, if we are to truly be built up, we need each other. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12 that as a body we must never say to each other, I have no need of you. The building, pro- the building up of the people of God is not a solo project. It's truly an every member project. It is so much bigger than one person. Even the facets of ministry are so much bigger than one person. And I think sometimes it can be misleading to stand before you and, and preach because it looks like I'm by myself. And I hope when you see me that you also see my wife, Lisa, my teammates. And I hope that when you see me, you also see the 50 or so people who are supporting me. And I hope when you see me that you also see Santia who made the slides and you see the, the video tech person and you see the audio tech person who enables us to hear. I hope that when you see me, you see all the people who have prayed for our time together this morning. You see, the calling of the church is so much bigger than one person. Even a facet of ministry cannot be accomplished alone. We need each other. May we, like Nehemiah, have an attitude which says, I need you. I will go to great lengths for you to be a part of this. I will take great pains to make space for your gifts because without you, this project will fail. In many ways, Nehemiah is a parallel to Moses in the Bible. They both left a luxurious palace and went to deliver the people out of foreign captivity and then established them as a covenant community. Which, by the way, also points forward to Jesus Christ. So we see this parallel. Moses, Nehemiah, Jesus. Leading the people out of foreign captivity. Leaving the glories of the palace. And right now, I'm trying to see Nehemiah at a Moses moment in his ministry. As Moses approached the people of Israel for the first time, he was not sure if they would accept his message and his leadership. So he was a bit nervous. If the people didn't receive him, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. And so Nehemiah faces a similar dilemma at this juncture. He's about to come before the people. He's about to deliver his speech. And the question is, will they accept him or reject him? Will this project get off the ground? It's a Moses moment. Nehemiah begins his speech in scene two, 
starting at verse 17. We read, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Just like the king had surprisingly endorsed this project in chapter 2, so now amazingly, the people respond with a unanimous yes. And you just have to see God orchestrating all of this. You just have to see his hand behind his scenes, the scenes. Ultimately, this is his project. We have to understand that the group of people Nehemiah is speaking to here must have felt incredibly stuck. They had tried to rebuild the wall before, back in Ezra chapter 4, which was several years ago, maybe even a hundred years ago. They had tried to rebuild it, and the whole thing had been shut down by an edict of the king. What more could they do? They didn't have resources. They were probably struggling, probably living on scraps. It would have been extremely easy to give in to apathy and resign themselves to their situation. Why bother? And sometimes we, in the church, it's easy to feel that way, isn't it? Isn't it easy to feel like we're stuck in a rut, in the same situation? We have tried something before and just hit a dead end. Why bother? It's so easy to give in to apathy, to think that change can't happen. And in fact, change is on the way. So how did God use Nehemiah to inspire this group of people? I think we need to hear this. Because I think it speaks to us when we're stuck in a rut. First, he joins them and shows his willingness to be a part of the solution. Notice how he says in verse 17, the trouble we are in. He just got there three days ago. The trouble we are in. And then he says, come, let us rebuild. He shows his commitment to them and his commitment to not sit on the sidelines. In essence, he says, we are in this together. And I think of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians when he says, when one member of the body suffers, all suffer. You see, we are in this together. And it takes that attitude of saying, I will be a part of the solution. You see, in many ways, the situation of the, of the people of Jerusalem, it might have been their fault. But Nehemiah comes to them 
and says, yes, it, it could be your fault, but we're going to figure it out together. And ultimately, that's what God is saying to them. Yes, this is your fault, but I will not leave you in your wreckage. I will help you find your way out. And he uses the people of God. We rarely find our way out by ourselves. So we need someone like Nehemiah. We need to be like Nehemiah to each other and say, Come, let us rebuild. Second, he brings them into a, a new perspective. He reminds them of what is truly important. The purpose he gives for rebuilding is so that Jerusalem may no longer suffer derision. In other words, Jerusalem was a joke to the surrounding nations. And that's one thing as it relates to the people, but more importantly, Jerusalem was known as the city of the king of heaven. God's name was tied to that place. When the nations looked to it, they were supposed to see the glory of God. And so this is the goal Nehemiah sets before them. It's not a small thing. Ultimately, that they would better reflect who God is to the surrounding world. This is what he lays before them. See this great purpose that you were made for. Third, he points them to the goodness of God. He says in verse 18, that the hand of my God has been upon me for good. In other words, God was supplying this project and seeing it through. And it's it's so striking to me, it's so fascinating, because even though the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at the time, was seemingly endless resources, even though he had given his royal approval, foremost in Nehemiah's mind was that God was for it. He's not thinking so much about Artaxerxes, he's thinking about Yahweh. And you can see this in the order of Nehemiah's statement in verse 18. First he mentions God, and then, it, then he kind of adds, oh yeah, and Artaxerxes also gave his approval. But it's really brought out in his interaction when the opponents show up. Just as things were really ramping up, things are getting exciting, the momentum is building, the project is about to be underway, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem show up and try to derail the whole thing before it even gets started. They threatened, are you rebelling against the king? You see, this is how the project had failed before. He's kicking up past failures trying to rattle the people, get into their heads. Nehemiah's reply is profound. He had the authorization of Artaxerxes. But he doesn't point to the authority of the king of Persia. He points to the authority of the God of heaven. More important than the king being behind them was the fact that God was for them. God was supplying this project and seeing it through. Verse 18 records the people's response. Let us rise up and build. Again, we hear that expression two verses later. We will arise 
and builds. And again, one verse after that, in chapter 3, verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up and built. There's a lot of rising up and building. The word translated rise up describes something that goes from a state of inactivity to mobility. It's what happens when the red light turns green and you hit the pedal. It's, it's when we get off from the couch or when we're called into a game. It, it's moving from being paused to going. Essentially, it's about taking action. The people of Jerusalem here proclaim, we will take action. And we too must join our voices with theirs. Let us rise up and build. Build up the people of God. We will take action for the same three reasons that the people of Jerusalem did. One, we will take action when we, like Nehemiah, commit to not sit on the sidelines. And again, when we, like Nehemiah, commit to not just point out problems, but position ourselves to be a part of the solutions. Two, we will take action when we see that our great purpose is to reflect God to the surrounding world. It's no longer a place that bears the name of God. It's a people. You and I. And the more we build each other up, the more we will become like Christ, and that is what the world is desperate to see. This is our great purpose. Three, we will take action when we remember that God is for us. Ultimately, this is his project. He is our supply. I think of how Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. That's his promise. He who began a good work in us will bring it all the way to completion. And even if we had all the resources of human power at our disposal, if we had high-tech gadgets and and big buildings and, and all the money that we needed, even if we had that, it would be a small detail compared to the fact that the infinite God of heaven has promised us his help. Good News Bible Church, let us rise up and build. We trace our way back to Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. We see the momentum rising. We see the project about to be underway. We see the opposition. And so the question is, what will happen next? As chapter 2 comes to a close, we wonder, will the people actually follow through on their word? And the answer to that question is the subject of scene three. We read the description in the first part of chapter three. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built a sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasanaah built the fish gate. 
They laid its beams, they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakots, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the Meshulam, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Jelida, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yisanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronophite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And that's the first eight verses. The people took action. It's beautiful. Sometimes it's easy to kind of skip over passages like these. It takes forever just to say the names. But when you stop and think about this chapter, it is so striking. It really provides us with an inside glimpse of the building process. I want us to trace back in our minds and imagine what it would be like to walk along the wall and see this all taking place. And what I read above, those eight verses with all the people next to each other, next to each other, next to each other, I want you to know that was about this far. This far along the wall. This far. And the rest of chapter 3 records how they went all the way along the wall. So we walk along the wall counterclockwise, which makes sense to me because Hebrew reads from right to left. And as we walk along, we notice that every single part is covered. Forty-one different work groups are mentioned, stretching all around the wall. And there's probably more than that. This is probably a general list. As one scholar said, a sense of seamless community work emerges. The wall itself was up to 8 feet thick and 15 to 20 feet high. Ten separate gates were built. And there's an amazing variety of people working on it. There are rulers, perfumers, goldsmiths, sons, daughters, Levites, and priests. Up at the temple, the high priest is working next to the merchants. The only ones missing are the nobles of Tekoa, seemingly because they saw themselves as above the work. Let each of us count one another as more significant than ourselves. There are a variety of tasks being performed. Some people are repairing. Some people are building. Some people work right in front of their homes. Some people work miles and miles away. And I want to emphasize that it probably wasn't easy for them to be there. But they came because they wanted to be a part of that project. They saw how valuable it was for them to be there. In, in this way, I just want to... Um, it just makes me think of Joe Irizarry. 
He is such an example to us. Because it's not easy for him to be here. But he takes great effort to be here. Even though it's not easy. And those times when we wake up in the morning and we don't feel like being here. I hope that we remember Joe. So Joe, thank you for your example. (laughs) Some people came, even though it was extremely difficult, because they saw they needed to be a part of this. And it wasn't just that they needed to be there, but that others needed them to be there. And so we observe different people serving in different areas with different gifts, but it's so clear as we look out that every member plays a crucial part. And the same is true for our building projects. Building up the people of God, arriving at that maturity in Christ, walking in the fullness of all we were meant to be, every member plays a crucial part. All of us have a part in this every member effort of building up. Sometimes we're tempted to think that it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not. I want to encourage you today that it so matters. God has uniquely gifted us to have something to offer. And so when we are missing, others are missing out. And so like the people of Jerusalem, we need everybody working side by side. Different people with different gifts, serving in different areas. But when we are all doing our part, the building project takes off. Nehemiah couldn't have built the wall by himself. The leaders couldn't have built the wall by themselves. It took the combined effort of all the members. What a beautiful thing. And what a, what a striking word for us today. Ephesians 4, 15-16 sums it up well. It says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joins and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now listen to this. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body builds itself up when every part is active. It's like we have all been assigned a piece of the wall. Good News Bible Church, let us rise up and build. We began with this question, what does it look like to build up the church? And I think it looks a lot like what it says on the back of our bulletins. Who are the ministers? All the people of Good News Bible Church. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father,